This is the fifth week in our series from this day forward. And I just kind of want to start, if you were here last week, I asked a bunch of questions and got you to raise your hand. We're going to do the same thing today, okay? Like, we're going to participate, we're going to laugh, but hopefully it's helpful for you as well. But if you're married, I just want to ask you some questions to kind of, kind of set the stage. So if you're married, how many of you would say, I married the opposite, right? Like, like my spouse is the opposite of me, okay? That's, that's pretty normal. That's pretty normal. So what's, what's interesting is when you're dating somebody, they say opposites attract, right? But when you're married, they say opposites attack, right? <laughs> how, many, how many of you got into a fight this morning on the way to church? Just kidding. Don't, don't, don't answer that, okay? So, so listen, I'm about, to, I'm about to say some stuff. No elbows, no pointing, okay? Like, listen, let's just, let's just kind of think about this idea of opposites uh, attract and attack. So here we go. How many of you, you can raise your hand and be honest, how many of you would say that you're the one who's punctual in your marriage, like getting somewhere on time matters to you? Where, where am I? Yes, you're my people. Thank you. Thank you. I like it. So listen, how many of you would say that you're more creative with your time? Listen, just take your time, raise your hand at your own pace, go with your own flow. It's fine. <laughs> How many of you would say when you plan a trip, you plan ahead, you kind of have an itinerary, like you have an agenda, right? You want to, yes, okay. How many of you, you just kind of spin a bottle, whatever way the bottle points, you just drive that way until you run out of gas? Anybody? <laughs> it makes me nervous just saying that, okay? Like much less actually doing it, but. Um, so how many of this? Uh, when it comes to money, how, where are my spenders at? We got some spenders like, hey, I'm buying Money's for having fun, like, let's go, right? Where are my savers at? Hey, listen, you know how you can tell a spender from a saver? A saver is the one who's making change out of the offering plate to make sure they give exactly 10%. <laughs> no, so, so listen, we, I think we all have experienced this, right? Like when you're dating, opposites attract, it's fun, and it's good, and and if you're different, that works, right? Like if you're the exact same person, one of you is unnecessary, right? Like, and that's strange. Like it's very common, <laughs> I assume. Uh, but like very, it's very common, like opposites uh, attract and it's good and it's, and it's beautiful. But what happens when you get married, you start to have these conflicts. And almost always the conflicts are so insignificant that if somebody on the outside were there with you in the bathroom, you're like, why are we arguing about the toothpaste and how you squeeze the tube, right? Like, like... Any, anybody squeeze from the top? How many normal people squeeze from the bottom, right? But like, what starts as an argument about toothpaste doesn't not escalate. It becomes this massive issue, and then there's mistrust, and then there's uh, a lie, and there's deceit, and there's unforgiveness, and there's bitterness. And, and what starts as something that bonds you guys close together, over time, what's so easy in marriage is that two people basically begin to live in a house almost as business partners. They're taking care of the kids. They're getting the bills paid. They're doing all their jobs, but they're not really connected. They're not really married in the way that I think God intended marriage to actually work. So often we go, we go from being convinced that every love song on the radio is about us, right? Like, like we're convinced that they must have been looking at our marriage when they wrote that song. Like we go from that to like, divorce court, we're like literally dividing the estate up. Like it, it, it seems like it just escalates so quickly, right? So listen, 
we believe God does not want that for you, for your, for your marriage, and that it doesn't have to be like that. Your experience does not have to be that. And that's why throughout this series, kind of we're encouraging our church to make five commitments. And if you've been here over the last five weeks, we've walked through each one of these. And so the first one is that we ha- are committing to seek God. We are going to seek the one with our two, right? We're going to seek the one with our two. We're going to pray, pray, pray. The second is we're going to have fun. We're going to have fun emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Amen? Guys, I thought you were at my back on that one. Okay? Number three, we're going to fight fair. We're going to fight uh, not to win. We are going to fight for resolution. Uh, last week, we talked about staying pure. We're not going to mix any cyanide in our relationship with God or with our spouse. And then today, we're going to talk about never giving up. But before we dig in, I just want to be clear that all the stuff we're talking about today, we're not talking about staying in an abusive marriage relationship where you're a punching bag physically or emotionally, right? We're not talking, like, that's a whole different kind of category, okay? If you're in an abusive relationship, like, we believe it is healthy for you to separate and get counseling, make sure you're safe, and then begin to work on the marriage. Like, we're not saying stick, stick to it and work it out and be a punching bag. Like, that's not our heart. Don't hear me say that. Don't think that's Colonial Hill's uh, stance. Um, That's a whole kind of different conversation than what we're trying to have today. Also, I just want to say some of you had a marriage that did end in the past. Like like you've kind of walked through some of this before. You divorced. And I... I, It's hard to preach a sermon like this without a lot of people just feeling very guilty. Right? It's very hard for, for this sermon to be preached and for people who've gone through a divorce to not feel super guilty. But that's not my heart. Right? I, I'm... I know people just carry a lot of guilt, and I don't want to, to pile that on. I also know that for some of you in this room, you, you were divorced, and you literally did everything that you could to keep the marriage going and to fight for resolution, to do all these things, and you just had somebody else who did not work with you, and it was a one-sided thing, and it was bad, and like, I understand that that is common. And, and then the other kind of group in the room is somebody who was divorced, and like, if you were just completely honest, you would say, if I could go back, I would do it differently again because I made a lot of mistakes that really contributed to my marriage ending, and you honestly carry the weight of that. And so, listen, just for our purposes today, just to be as clear as I can, I want us to commit as Christians, right? I want us to commit to do everything in our power to look from this day forward. No matter what's happened in your past, from this day forward as Christians, we are going to never give up because we serve a God who says all things are possible, okay? So, we're going to look at Matthew 19. We're going to look at verses 3 through 6, and and hopefully we're going to try to wrap our mind around kind of this idea of what it means for us as God's people to never give up. But what's happening, like we're only going to read a few verses, and so to understand what those verses really mean, you have to understand that Jesus is in the middle of a conversation between the Pharisees um, and himself. And so the Pharisees are these religious leaders. They're very smart. Think they're like... They're like an, etur- an attorney uh, for the Old Testament. Like they're so smart, they know everything, right? They, they know it better than you do. And so what they're trying to do is trap Jesus. They don't like Jesus, and so they're always trying to find these different ways they can put Jesus in this corner where he can mess up so where they can discredit him. And so what's happened is these Pharisees have come to Jesus, and it specifically says they've come to test him. They don't love him. They don't really want to know the answer. They want to put him in a position to where he gets in trouble. And they're basically saying this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now, 
you have to understand the culture in Jesus' day is different than our culture today. And, and women, especially like wives in that culture, they were treated as property. You could basically do the same thing with your cow that you can do with your wife. You could just do whatever you want, and it's not okay, and, and we're not saying that, but we're saying that was the reality of what they experienced in that time. And so basically a man could be like, I don't want you anymore, and they were divorced. Like no court, nothing else. A man could cut the, cut, sever the, the marriage relationship, and it was over for the woman. And it almost always left her in poverty and um, a social outcast and all these other things. And so the Pharisees are coming to Jesus to trap him and saying, hey, you know, what's Jesus going to say about this idea of marriage and divorce? Like, like what's Jesus going to actually say? And Jesus, in Jesus' fashion, he doesn't just raise the standard a little bit. He doesn't even raise the standard a lot. What Jesus does is he shatters any preconceived notion about what he was supposed to say. And his answer would have been shocking to anybody listening uh, to him in that moment. And so, like, what, I, what we're about to read... There's no doubt you've heard this before. But for us, it doesn't pack that punch. And I just want you to know that it's supposed to. Like what Jesus says is shocking, okay? So think about that as we read. This is Matthew 19, uh, 4-6. It says, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus is actually quoting Genesis when he talks about two becoming one flesh. So listen, when it says one flesh, that doesn't mean that, that okay, once you get married, you no longer have personality, or you don't have gifts, or you don't have an identity. What he's saying are the two have now become one flesh in God's eyes. They're united in such a way that they are literally one flesh before God. And that's why he's saying what, what uh, God has joined together, let no one separate. And so this would be like taking two pieces of paper and gluing them together, right? And so, I mean, basically, once you glue them together, they're, they're one piece of paper. And then if you try to take that, those pieces of paper and tear them apart, like there's no way you're going you're gonna to rip apart two full, clean, perfect pieces of paper. There's going to be tears and rips, and it's going to completely be, you know, not what it was before. And so listen, like that's the idea. Like why does diver divorce hurt so much? It's like ripping your heart out. And so listen, those of you who've been divorced, you know the pain. Those of you who had parents divorced, you know the pain. I don't care what you think about it theologically. Like it is extremely painful in every way because what's happening is you're trying to rip something apart that God has joined together. It's going to be messy. It's going to be going to have rips and tears, right? Just like that piece of paper. Like, like, how can you possibly separate what God has joined together? Divorce is incredibly painful. Andy Stanley, who's a pastor in Atlanta, says it like this. He says, you can't unone what God made one. You can't unone what God made one. And the problem with our culture is people don't understand what marriage, marriage is. They think of it more of a contract then they do think of it as a covenant. And a contract and a covenant are two vastly different things. Um, a contract is an agreement, right? A contract is like, it basically says, if you do your part, I will do my part. Um, 
if, if I have a contract, basically that contract gives me rights. So if the other person doesn't do their part, I can leverage the contract to either get what I need or want from that other person. And that's what basically all contracts do. Like you have a car payment or a rent payment, right? And you're basically agreeing upon something. And so as long as I do my part, the loaner does their part and everything is okay. But if I don't pay my car payment, what's going to happen? If you've ever watched the car repo, man, you know, okay? Like they come in and they take that bad boy from you. Like, because you're in this contract. It's, it's, it's this mutual agreement. A contract basically says, I trust you as long as you perform, but if you don't live up to my expectations, I'm out. And I think that's what people do with marriage, right? I heard a quote the other day that said something to the effect of, people are so excited about weddings, but very few people are actually ready for marriage. People are excited about the wedding day and the pictures and all that, but very few people are actually prepared for marriage because we go into marriage, and, and we probably would never say this, but we think this and we live this out all the time. What we do is say, hey, as long as you make me happy, as long as you meet my needs, as long as nothing better comes along, then I'm going to stick with this. But if you don't live up to your end of the bargain, then I'm out. I'm going to go find something better that fits me better. But listen, that's a, that's, a way, that's a way a contract works, right? Like, that's, that's not the way marriage works. Marriage is a covenant. And a covenant is this permanent relationship. All throughout the Bible, you see God as this covenant God who's making these promises to his people. And they're permanent to the extent where we're still um, receiving the promises, the benefits of God promises from Genesis 3 and 12 and 15 and 17. All the way back thousands of years ago, God's making these promises and we're still reaping the benefits of them because he's a covenant God. He makes these promises that do not end. The Hebrew word translated as covenant is called berith and it literally means a cutting. And in the Old Testament, um, they would cut a bull in half, and the two parties would walk through the bull, the inside that was cut. They would walk through seven times. And basically what they were saying is, hey, if I break my covenant, basically what happens to the bull should happen to me. Like, it was serious. It wasn't, it wasn't arbitrary. Like, it was serious. Like, if you don't believe me, like, the, uh, one of the first ones that this happens is Genesis 15. God cuts the bull and makes this, this, um, this covenant with Abraham. Like, it's serious business. It's this permanent promise. In the Old Testament, the way people would often get married is they would come and they would stand before a representative of God who would um, do the ceremony and throughout that ceremony they would take the hand of the groom and, and cut it until blood would emerge and then they would take the hand of the bride and cut it until blood would emerge and then they would put the hand of the bride and groom together and, and, and why would they do that? Because there's something about the blood, that the, there's life in the blood is what the book of Leviticus tells us. And they would literally mingle the groom and the bride's blood together, and then the representative of God would wrap a cord around their hands, signaling that they are no longer two, but they are now one. What God has joined together, let not man separate. You don't un-one what God made one. I think this is also why weddings are so beautiful and deep, Right? People are typically standing before a pastor in a church. They're before other people. They're literally standing before God, and they're committing to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, forsaking all others. But the end isn't like forsaking all others and being faithful as long as they make me happy. Like That's not how the phrase ends. It's not as long as they fulfill their part of the deal. It's not as long as nobody better comes along. Like, the, that, that phrase finishes with, as long as you both shall live. Like, there's no end date on this. You're, you're making this permanent, 
um, commitment with somebody else, this permanent covenant with somebody else that says, no matter what, I'm, I'm in till the end. Like, that's what we're saying before God and man. Listen, on a contract, there's an end date. Like, you buy a car, you, you put it on a three- or five-year note. At the end of that note, you're through, right? You own the car. It is what it is. But a covenant is until death do us part, so help me God. There's a lot of depth, right, behind this idea of marriage, behind this idea of one flesh. And that's why we never give up, because we don't want to unone what God made one. This is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 19, and it's deep, right? It's deep. Now, let's step back into reality, right? Marriage is painful and difficult. Marriage is painful and difficult. Somebody's with me. All right, listen. Listen, that's, that's just the reality. We're basically making this covenant before God. We're saying we're going to keep that covenant no matter what, but like, We've all been in that position, you know, where like we're struggling, right? And some of the extreme versions of that is, you know, I'm not happy. I don't trust him. Like she's not this and she's not that. Like I don't love her anymore. I don't love him anymore, right? But listen, to get divorced because you've run out of love is like selling your car because you've run out of gas. Like that's, that's not the way it works, right? Like, like getting divorced because it's not going well is like selling your car because it's run out of gas. Like that's not how you handle that issue. Instead, if you find yourself struggling to love your spouse, what do you do? You refill the love. And don't get me wrong, like I know that there's those times where you're like, man, I have no more love to give. I don't have any more forgiveness. I don't have any more patience. I don't have any more grace. I've literally done everything I can. And guess what? That's where your seeking God from week one really pays off. That's where your seeking God from week one really pays off because when you don't have any more love, guess who loves through you? Like 1 John tells us that God doesn't just love, but God is love. Like that's the, the very nature and character of who he is. It's not just something he does, it's who he is. He is love. So if you are a Christian, this is where your understanding of the love and the grace of Jesus becomes big, Right? Like, who's received more grace and love from Jesus than you? Like, if you know yourself well, then you know you're the chief of sinners, right? You know your wickedness more than anybody else. And, like, you understand and you've received the depth and the riches of the grace and the love of Jesus. And so we love others because we've been loved with an eternal and perfect love of Jesus. And the more we cling to Jesus, no matter how hard it gets, and believe me, we, like, I know. I'm 15 years in May for me. Like, I know it can get difficult, but... When marriage is difficult, you cling to God and you let God do through you what you don't have the strength to do and you let him to continue to love through you. We've got to cling to God. So listen, what do we do though, right? Like if your marriage is struggling or maybe your marriage is in a good spot and you just want it to be better, like what do we actually do? Like how do we set ourselves up to where we never get to the point where we want to give up, right? Like how do we set ourselves up on this path that we're going to have the marriage that I think Jesus died for us to have? Listen, here's what we're going to do. There's these two principles that I'm going to share with you. You know them, but we need to hear them and we need to be reminded of them. They're the principles of sowing and reaping, okay? So this is great foundational stuff, but also if, if your marriage is great, like I'm experiencing these principles and my marriage is probably in the best spot it's ever been in right now, right? And, and, and the more I sow and I reap into my marriage, the more and the better, like the more beautiful it is and the better it gets. Listen to Galatians 6. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, 
Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Okay, so listen. Two principles of reaping and sowing. Here's the first one. You reap what you sow. Right? Everybody say that. You reap what you sow. All right? So, if I put an apple into the ground, I'm not expecting an orange tree to come up. Right? If you do... That's problematic, all right? Like, like, it's obvious. If I plant an apple tree, I'm expecting an apple tree. If I plant an apple seed, I'm, plant, I'm expecting an apple tree to grow because you reap what you sow. So listen, just, just real quick, and as far as relationships go, if somebody smiles at you, what are you likely to do back? You're likely to smile back, right? You reap what you sow. Um, somebody cuts you off in traffic and cusses you out, what are you likely to do back? Pray for... Th- you pray for them and bless them because you're a Christian. <laughs> hey, but, but for real. Hey, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, is it not the most tempting thing in the world? Like, they're mad at you and you didn't even do nothing wrong. And like, it, there's a rage in you, right? And like, you're so tempted to strike. Like, like, you reap what you sow. Like, if you're angry towards somebody, you're probably going to get some anger back, right? In marriage, if somebody shows grace and compassion and thoughtfulness, like, what are you likely to show back? Grace. And compassion. If somebody's always complaining and comparing and always critical over and over and over, like, what's going to happen? You're likely to come back with defensiveness and anger and self-justification, just things that are not good. The harvest depends on the seeds you plant. And now, men, let me talk to you for a second, because I think men, were supposed to go first. We're supposed to be the head. We're supposed to take that step of faith no matter what first. But listen, you have to remember that women are multipliers, right? Whatever you give them, they multiply. And so when you were single, your home probably smelled like a locker room, okay? Let's just, it just does, okay? But listen, you get married, a woman comes in and does her thing, and she makes your locker room into a home where things match and they smell good, and you're like, I married a magician. Like, I didn't know this. I didn't know the bathroom could smell pleasant, you know? Like, 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 like they multiply. They do things that we just don't do. Like, like, you're trying to make your ramen noodles, and you're trying to impress her, so you're like, these are gourmet. You know what I'm saying? You're trying to, like, she's like, no, she buys groceries. She has all these ingredients. She puts them together, and it comes out the most delicious meal you've ever had that you've never deserved, right? Like, they multiply. Men, you give them flowers and affection and communication and tenderness. You give them your heart, and she gives you a little week to have fun. Am I right? Man, man, you have left me hanging so many times. I'm offended. Every single man in this room, I'm offended. But listen. Ladies, is that not true? Listen, you're more in the mood when you're convinced your husband considers you and knows you, is tender toward you, is in tune with you, right? Like when you feel known and loved, when you feel considered and cared for, it completely changes the dynamic of the relationship, right? Like when that's not true, it's, listen, men, you give, you give your woman a hard time and she will wreak havoc. Like they're multipliers. Like that's what happens. <laughs> Hey, listen, you reap what you sow, right? Amen. You can't, you can't give them no attention and be cold toward them and then wonder why they're not warm to you later, right? Like that, that you reap what you sow. Listen, this is my favorite point of the, the sermon right here. This is what I think is most applicable. This right here, it could be a very positive or a very negative statement depending on your situation, okay? Are you ready? Listen, if you don't like what you're getting, look what you've been giving. If you don't like what you're getting, look what you've been giving. 
So listen. I don't know if I have time or not because the clock's broke, so I'm just going to tell the story anyways. It's not in my notes. So listen. My marriage is in the best spot it's ever been in. We've been married for 15 years. I love Callie. She's my best friend. I've not done a great job loving her and surprising her and considering her over the years. Even though we've had a good marriage, like, I haven't, it's not been the great marriage I think Jesus died for it to, to be. And like this year since Christmas, I've really tried to consider her and think about her and surprise her and care for her and be more tender to her. And listen, our good marriage is like approaching a great marriage. Like we're in the best spot we've ever been in. Not because everything was bad and I had to make all this makeup time. Like no, like I've just started investing even more into my good relationship and it's making it an even better relationship, right? Like you reap what you sow. Like if you don't like what you're getting, look what you've been giving. Right? Like, like if you're going to half-heartedly go after your wife, like, it is what it is. Like, men, we're called to pursue them in love and to know them and to go hard, like, after them in every possible way so that they know that they're loved and never doubt that. And when your wife knows that, it's a game-changer for your relationship. It's a game-changer in how you fight. It's a game-changer in how you disagree. It's a game-changer in how you celebrate. Like, the good times become better. Like, if you don't like what you've been getting, look at what you've been giving. You reap what you sow. That's number two right here. You reap where you sow. That's a good one right there. Listen, if I plant an apple tree over here, I'm not expecting an apple tree to grow over here, right? You reap where you sow. If I plant all my energy and effort and all my passion into my hobby, is that going to help my marriage get better? Unless your hobby is... The answer is no. I can't even think of anything to say right there, okay? <laughs> if you plant all your time and energy into your, into your hobby, your marriage is not going to get better. Listen, here, here's a really sticky topic. If, if you put all your energy into your kids and you become a child-centered home and child-centered parents, is that going to help your marriage? Oh, it's going to be devastating. It's going to be devastating. The best thing for your kids, the best way to parent your kids is to love God with your, is one and love your spouses too right? That's the best parenting tip I could ever give you is love God with all your heart and then love your spouse. Second, that's the best thing for your kids to experience. But listen, you become a child-centered home, man, that's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna end bad. It, it does every time. Look, you put all your energy and effort into your career. Is that gonna help your marriage? No. I know a guy who has built a multi-million dollar um, business and just got divorced, right? It's crazy. Like, you, you invest all your energy into your career and then wonder why your marriage isn't working. Like, there's something to that. You reap where you sow. Why are things not going great? Like, if, if you're sitting there and, like, you're struggling, like, why are things not going great? Have you been seeking God? Have you been having fun? Have you been fighting fair? Have you been staying pure? Because if not, that's probably why you feel like giving up. Remember, God is our one, our spouse is our true. We have to guard that priority. If anything moves into that position and disrupts that, it's going to end badly. Men and women, listen to this, listen. What if we became experts at encouraging our spouses, right? What if we became experts at encouraging our spouses? What if uh, we decided to fully invest into our spouse regardless of what we get out of it simply because we want to love them and we want to honor God? God. Like what if we refuse to tear our spouse down in public? What if we put a stake in the ground and said, God is my one, my spouse is my two, and I will no longer put my kids in that number one or number two spot in our life? 
What if our chief goal was to make it to where our spouse never doubted our love, our devotion, our commitment, and our care for them? Like, what if those were the driving questions for our lives? I think it would change things because it's so true. You reap what you sow, and you reap where you sow. And here's what you've got to decide. If you're married, you have to decide this. Five weeks, one statement. It's going to seem simple, but don't miss the power in it. Your marriage is as good as you decide for it to be. Your marriage is as good as you decide it will be. That's it. It is. Listen, Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is this picture of Christ and the church. It means that God's heart for your marriage is that it would be so healthy that it would literally mirror and reflect the gospel of Jesus. Which means the more you are captivated by Jesus and his love for you, the more you will desire to have the marriage that God wants for you. And God desires that our marriages be these tiny pictures of Jesus laying down his life for the church in love. But that doesn't happen by itself. Our marriages become these, these beacons reflecting God's love, reflecting God's gospel when we decide to seek God and have fun and fight fair and stay pure and never give up. And listen, I know some of you, you're just tired, right? Your marriage is not going good. You feel like you're the only one trying. You feel like you don't have any more to give. And can I just point you to Jesus? Like he knows. As believers, we've all been unfaithful to Jesus, but he's been perfectly faithful. Like he knows what it's like. He knows what it feels like, which means, listen, if your marriage isn't what you know God wants it to be, Jesus can identify with you. He's near and he's good. He's not some far off God who doesn't know what you're experiencing. Like he's here. And my hope for you this morning, if you're struggling, is that you would feel the nearness of Jesus, that you would feel his goodness, and that you would know that he knows you and that he sees you. And I'm begging you to keep seeking him. And listen, this is how I ended last week, and this is how I'm going to end this week, too. You have to know this. Listen, Jesus changes things. He does. Jesus changes things. Listen, seek him with all you've got. Have fun. Fight fair. Stay pure. Never give up. Would you bow your heads? Christians, if you're a believer, real quick, you reap what you sow, you reap where you sow. And so, if you're a believer in the room, I just want you to silently answer this question. Are those two principles, are they positive statements for you, or are they negative statements for you? Right? You reap what you sow, you reap where you sow. In your life, what does that look like? And, and, and if something needs to change, like, are you even willing to make that change? Like, what's the Lord saying to you? What's he leading you to do? What's he showing you for you in your life? What does it look like for you? to reap what you sow, reap where you sow? What does it look like for you to, to, to reap life into your marriage? If you are not a believer, what I need you to know is this, that Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine, and he's inviting you to place your faith and trust in him today. The core of our belief is not that Jesus fixes all of our problems or that he makes life easy. Listen, if, if people are preaching that, that's wrong. If, if, if the core of our faith is about making our life easy, then why did Jesus die on the cross, right? Like he did not, like he didn't get his problem, like he died for our problems, right? Like the core of our faith isn't that Jesus fixes our problems and makes life easy. The core of our faith is that through Jesus, we get God and he is better than life itself. Like our great reward is that we get to know God and be with him forever. And that's what some of you need right now. Like you've literally tried everything, but you've never fully surrendered to Jesus 
And I just hope like right now you feel his, his nearness, you feel his love, and you feel him drawing you to himself because he's inviting you to him. And so listen, if you're not a believer and you want to put your faith in Jesus, I'm going to walk you through it. If you're already a Christian, you don't have to do this, you don't need to do this. But if you want to put your faith in Jesus, I just want to kind of walk you through a prayer that you could pray. And listen, saying words doesn't save you. Like at some point, you're going to have to believe these things in your heart. And that's what saves you. It's belief, right? That we believe in Jesus. And so if you want to become a believer... Maybe with everyone's head bowed, every eye closed, just something like this. Jesus, I acknowledge my sin before you. I don't have the ability to save myself or to, to make a payment for all my sins. Lord, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you resurrected that third day. I put my faith and my trust in you, and I surrender my life to you.